Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. So I'm wa walking down the corridor to come in here. I meet a guy in the hallway, and he turns to me and he says, uh, going to the 430 thing, I hope the speaker doesn't suck. <laughs> I, 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 I said, I got to fully agree, Derek. <laughs> So anyway, you, you know where my mind is wrapped around. So um, just a couple of thoughts on uh, decorum for this. Uh, one is I promise to offend. And I can't help it. Just, just point of reference, I want to be very clear about what I'm about to say. While nothing he says in terms of content I agree with, I understand exactly how the president speaks. He grew, his family hails from exactly the same part of Queens where I grew up. So just so when you read the paper and turn on the TV and you're trying to understand, how could someone speak that way? I'll give you an example, healthcare exact, actually. So I called my dad up a couple of weeks ago. I said, Dad, how are things going? He said, well, I took your mom to the doctor. And nothing serious, no worries about that. I said, well, how was it? The doctor's awful. The guy's terrible. Someone should revoke his license. Next day, I called my dad. I said, Dad, you know, how you doing? He said, took your mother to a different doctor. I said, how is that? Guy's amazing. He's world-class. International reputation. So what I want to point out is that where I grew up, there's never a question which gets answered with, okay. So it's always extremes. It's always extremes. So if you get nothing else out of the next 58 minutes, you'll understand when you turn on the TV and you hear the president always talking in terms of things are utterly horrible, terrible, tragic, or fantastic, great. Just understand, he has no middle. None of us do. Um, so another, another part on it. So anyway, promise one, I will offend someone here because I was raised by wolves. Um, the, the, the second part is no matter how far in the back you chose to sit so you could check your email while I'm talking, please interrupt. And, and here's how you interrupt someone from Queens. When they're talking, you don't raise your hand and say, excuse me, I have a question. You, you, you call out, that's idiotic. And, and, and the reason you do that, that's how my grandmother talks to me at Thanksgiving. All right, so anyway, now we've we got the ground rules set. So I want to talk about the theme of discovering your way to greatness with a lot of emphasis both on the greatness and the discovery element. So first things first, um, who in this room wants to be greater? Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping all the hands are going up. I mean, because if the hand that didn't go up, either you're like, I don't know why you're here, but oh, you're really arrogant. So let's try it again. Who wants to be greater? Yeah, damn straight. Okay, now um, let, let's start talking about Give a moment's thought, not too much. The work you do, what does greater mean? So call it out. What, you know, someone yell it out. What do you do and what does greater mean? Safer. All right, what else? Safer, kinder. What else? Telling the truth. What else? Is that a shot at the president and my people? <laughs> All right, Mr. Alternate News. All right, all right. So we got safer, kinder. Um, what else? What's that? Make it cheaper. All right, good. All right, so we got, we got to start. Now, let, 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 me, let me just anchor in terms of what defining greatness means. I start with a microprocessor. So for my buddies who work at Intel, they define their business as being letting you do computation and the more computation you can do, the faster and the smaller the profile, the better off. Now, converting that into your space. So we've had conversation in primary care. What does greater mean? It means that I can help more people live in a healthy fashion and help them when they're not. In emergency departments, it means I can assess and start treatment right away for everybody about anything Without, without imposing delays and, and so on and so forth. In, in labs, what does greater mean? It means I get you the information you need right away in perfect form so you can make a, 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 an informed decision. What does it mean in transport? It means I get you from where you are to where you need to be with speed, comfort, and dignity. What does it mean in pharmacy? 
that exactly the medication you need, you get exactly when and where you need it. No confusion, no delay. And on discharge, if I say you're leaving at Wednesday at 9 o'clock, you're leaving at Wednesday at 9 o'clock with a seamless transition to the next, next stage of care. That, that, that's what great means. All right, now, here, here's the thing about great. I was given a presentation um, some months ago, and before I got up, someone started talking about the Iron Triangle. And uh, I studied engineering. I was kind of curious. Iron triangles, it looks like structural. I'm a mechanical engineer. I was interested. What's this iron triangle? And I said, well, amongst you know, safety and cost and access, and you can throw other dimensions on your, the points of your triangle, that you have to realize. You have to understand. Now, let me just as an aside. All right, so I grew up in New York where people are in your face all the time. I've spent time in the Midwest. It's a guy named Michael I met from Cincinnati Children's. And in the Midwest... They're not in your face that way. They, they, it is like this um, way to talk. They'll say, well, you know, with all due respect. And I discovered, actually, that's oxymoronic. With all due respect, they mean actually the respect due is zero. Right? <laughs> and, and if they tag that on or pair that with, well, you really have to understand, what they're saying in New Yorkese is, you're an idiot and a moron, so let me explain it to you like you're a simpleton. <laughs> All right, so anyway, different package, same message. So anyway, uh, I'm at this uh, presentation, and they're explaining to me, with all due respect, you need to understand, there's this iron triangle amongst quality, cost, and access. And if you try to improve on one, you have to give up on another. And if you try to improve on two, for sure you have to compromise on a third. And they said there was such conviction, like somehow... This iron triangle rule was written into the laws of the natural universe like the four laws of thermodynamics or Newtonian laws of motion, the iron triangle. Well, I got to say, when someone is asking you to speak on improving the delivery of care and they tell you there's an iron triangle, you feel <laughs> like those poor suckers at the prison in the Harry Potter movies where your soul is getting sucked out by the Dementor. Because basically the iron triangle belief is, is an espoused, expressed hopelessness. You know, Ron, you know, with all due respect, you got to understand, iron triangle, you know. It's like, oh, man, you know, what's the point? All right, so what I want to get with you is, um, one, this iron triangle is uh, an urban myth, as it were, but it doesn't really exist. And, but the thing is, to break the iron triangle... There's no amount of good decision you can make. It's all about behavior. So that's what we're going to get. Greatness is possible, but there's something about the behavior of discovering your way there that's critical. So uh, moving on. So anyway, just want to give you an example. My first computer. That sucker in 1980 dollars was about two grand. And it was a thing of beauty because um, its internal storage was all, I get this, I paid a premium to get go from 20 to 40 meg storage. I mean, do you realize I get Snapchat from my daughters, which consume more than 40 meg of storage? And, and, and this thing technically was portable. I mean, I had to wear a truss for a month and a half later, but it, <laughs> but it was portable. Now, now, here's the thing. This is a current phone. All right? Now, that phone actually costs less in, in, in current, let, let alone real value, costs less than the one on the left. And it does everything. I forget the memory on there, but terabyte or whatever, some gigantic number with lots of zeros after in terms of storage. And I can do my email. I can take pictures. I can Snapchat. I mean, I can't do anything productive. <laughs> I mean, the one on the left was very heavy, but I could do spreadsheets and word processing. The one on the left, I, I never have time for that stuff because I'm doing all this other stuff. It can navigate here and there. And, and, and I pay exactly the same today what I used to pay for that, uh, that big block of plastic and metal. Now you ask yourself the question, why was it in the 80s I had to pay two grand for the thing on the left, where in, in, in now I can pay less than half that for the thing on the right? Why couldn't I buy a thing on the right in the 80s? No one knew how to make it. Right? It's not like someone was sitting around at IBM or Compaq or anywhere else and said, well, yeah, we could really deliver a phenomenal device. You know, 
GPS and navigation and communication and photography and videos and data stream and all that, but they're not ready for it. Let's say they're selling the, the pile of junk on the left. No, no, what they did is they said, this is the best we can deliver, so let's get it into the marketplace right now. And then someone came on with something better and something better, and there was this race to discover ever better solutions to our data and our media and our computing needs. Another example, car on the left. So a lot of this quality stuff is informed by Toyota's demonstration. So let's just anchor this. So uh, the car on the left is a Toyota Toyo Pet. First introduced in the United States in the 1950s. Anyone ever hear of a Toyo Pet? Yeah, so what does that suggest about Toyo Pets if no one in the room has ever really heard of a Toyo Pet? Yeah, so I think the mummering in the back, putting a New York ease, it's no one ever heard of it because it sucked. All right, so let, let me quantify that and qualify. So to make a Toyo Pet, Toyota needed eight times the labor to make a Toyo Pet that GM, Ford, and Chrysler needed to make a car that people actually wanted. All right, and not only that, if you actually were the sucker who bought a Toyo Pet, and you were in that Toyo Pet and you had to go up the hill, now, bearing in mind Toyota's first market was California, which has hills. Not like, I guess Florida, they should come to Florida, no hills, right? Not a problem, right? Their first market was California, lots of hills. Your odds, again, no guarantee, your odds of getting to the top of the hill were better in reverse. <laughs> and, and again, you might not get there. You know, and I think if you go to California today and you see something which looks like a rusted pile of car parts facing the wrong way uphill, you'll know why. All right, but, but this, is Toyota, this, is, this is Toyota today, right, which is um, selling a very broad range of cars, all of which offer incredible affordable reliability, plus all sorts of forms and features which slot into all the different driving needs you might want. Now, same rhetorical question, why didn't Toyota sell you a Camry hybrid in 1954? Because they didn't know how to. It's not like someone at Toyota said, hey, you know, uh, we, we, we could actually make a car of high quality with great efficiency, but we won't because who would really want to pay for that? Let's make junk ineffectively instead. No, that was the best they could do. But, but in that period, they had this profound increase in productivity and quality and time to market and man management of new technology. So anyway, just to end this with uh, what's perhaps a uh, local example. So uh, when I was growing up, now, I was thinking that uh, my examples here, they all make sense if you're over 40. And, and if you're under 40, they make no sense because basically you're spoiled. All right. <laughs> the people invited me are all over 40, so I feel safe with that. All right, but anyway, just, just the last slide on this is that uh, when I was growing up, you know, northeast of the United States, and you wanted fruit in the winter, you bought it in a can. Um, you know, we're in December. We had snow yesterday in Boston, and we're going to have more snow. And if I want a navel orange, I'll just go to the store and buy a damn navel orange. And, and why is that? It's not, and again, it's the same question. So when I was growing up in the 60s, was it that there was someone with a secret stash of navel oranges who was saying, well, you know, Steve and his family, they won't really appreciate navel oranges. We'll, send him the, we'll sell, sell them the canned peaches instead in, in February. The problem was, in the 60s and 70s, people didn't know how to grow navel oranges in the winter and get them to Boston and New York and Michigan and all these other very cold places in Toronto. Toronto people are here, right? Didn't know how to get it to those cold places quick enough that you'd want to eat a navel orange, so they sent you canned peaches instead. But now, with the, with the discoveries in agriculture and transportation and refrigeration, et cetera, et cetera, and logistics, of course, you can get a navel orange in Boston in February. My kids are completely unimpressed. They say, oh, I don't like that one. I want that one. I look at a navel orange in Boston in February, and it's like, hallelujah, Messiah. <laughs> it's a miracle. I'm looking at a miracle. All right, so anyway, what I, what I want to offer is a response to this iron triangle notion. That if people elsewhere believed in iron triangles, we'd still be eating in Boston, New York, and Detroit, and Toronto, and Montreal, peaches out of a can in December, January, February, and March. If people actually believed in iron triangles, you'd still have a computer which was this big and a screen that big which did almost nothing at all. 
If people believed in iron triangles, you'd still be starting your car by turning a crank to get the thing started, and it might not continue to run. All right, so this whole iron triangle thing of quality, cost, access, and whatever else you want to put on those triangles, the notion that human beings can individually and collectively discover themselves to a better place, right, that's a false proposition. So um, now let me offer something else. Is, uh, you know, Derek, when he introduced me, he said, I'm an outsider coming into healthcare. And just to, to anchor that a little bit, I got into this line of work about 20 years ago, really trying to understand Toyota. Or more precisely, we were already 10 years into this whole lean manufacturing thing, and there was no second Toyota. So I was trying to understand what people missed. And in fact, the bow tie is not because I want to look like a doctor. I mean, no offense. No offense. It's a good look. But, but, but when I was younger, starting my research, I was visiting factories as a young guy. So I wanted to look respectful to my hosts. So that means put on a shirt and a tie. But I didn't want to get strangled by spinning things. So hence the bow tie. All right, so anyway, you have to understand that for the last 20 years, I've been using industrial examples to folks like you. And uh, uh, I'll get it. Let's skip. Gets the reaction, and this is the reaction I normally get. <laughs> All right. So uh, this is the reaction I normally get, and no, those are not my daughters at dinner. <laughs> These girls look excited compared to how my daughters react when I'm talking. <laughs> All right, so I'll come back to them in a second. Let me let me let me just uh, offer something: is that uh, this whole greatness thing? It's not just about cars and computers and portable phones and naval oranges in Boston and Toronto and Montreal in February. Let's just talk real quick about healthcare examples. So there are some folks who figured out how to do so much more, deliver so much more value to their patients, do it faster, and this is the key, because this really violates this whole iron triangle notion, and do it easier. So it's not like their staff is just working that much harder, that much harder in order to provide better care to more people quicker. It's actually, they're providing more care in a better fashion with less effort. It's win, win, win. The iron triangle gets shattered. And so some of these examples, um, primary care, where you don't have to wait. You just show up if you're not feeling well. And the primary care practice is seeing double the patients, and they're working less hard. They're completing their work within session. In labs, turning biopsy results around within hours and not sending someone home to worry overnight whether or not they're going to find out the following day that they have a horrible disease or not. Discharge, actually leaving when you're promised and arriving at whether it's extended care or home seamlessly without having to regress and get readmitted. So this greater thing, breaking the iron triangle, certainly is possible. Now anyway, when I tell the story about industry, we get this, and uh, you know, it doesn't. All right, let's, actually, let's work this out. So uh, this is a good setup for the next stage. So you can imagine, um, over the years, particularly when I was just venturing outside of industry into other fields, I would do my talks, and uh, there'd be someone who uh, said, "Well, nice, interesting. That's almost like, with all due respect." If anyone, if you're speaking, someone says that's very interesting. With all due respect, um, they're insulting you. But very interesting, but, you know, we don't make cars. We don't make cars. So anyway, just to role play, just together say, yeah, but we don't make cars. No, no, pretend you're from Queens. That's not how we would, that was like almost polite, like talking to a, a nun or a priest. Louder. Yeah, but we don't make cars. All right, and, and, and now let's make it authentic. Yeah, but we don't make no stinking cars. All right, go ahead, go ahead, try it. Now, all together, yeah, but. All right, I'm feeling at home now. This is good. All right, so uh, anyway, I was, I was uh, getting this, yeah, but we don't make no stinking cars thing. And uh, I had a temper tantrum. And, and I, I said to one of the physicians in the room, I said, yeah, but you don't make no stinking cars. But if you had a chance to go into two facilities, one which is delivering all this value into the marketplace uh, quicker and easier for everyone inside the facility than the other place which is struggling to deliver much lesser quality. What do you think the differences would be between one and the other? 
And, and, and I, I encourage you to think about this. If you had two labs, two nursing units, two emergency departments, whatever it is, and you had just a few minutes to go inside one or the other and try and quickly assess, five minutes max, which one is delivering more better care with less overburden on staff than the other, what would you look for? All right, now, now any, any, come on, you know no one's screaming at me. I'm not used to this. So what would you look for? Someone scream out. What would you look for? you got five minutes. So something about people. So whoever yelled out the people, happy. They're, the people are happy. Which people are happy? Everybody. All right, and someone over here, just yell it out again. What, what would you look for? Say you could walk away and say, oh, for sure, these people are the typical and these people are great. What's that? Okay, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. You're absolutely right, because this whole notion of delivering more value more quickly, more easily, will manifest itself as shorter wait times for better care. But it's actually hard sometimes to measure wait times unless you're there for an extended period or the wait times are very, very short. And I only said you got it, I only gave you about two, three, four, five minutes in there. Cleanliness. All right, that might be one. Yeah, what else? Let's keep going. Proce process? What do you mean? Less errors. Again, you're right. Shorter wait times is correlated with fewer errors, is co correlated with less overburden. But again, you got to measure that. And I'm saying you got, you got a, a quick tour, quick tour. Teamwork. All right, so the, the teamwork. What, what it, when you say teamwork, what is it? Add some color to that commentary. So, something about, all right, same way, organized. Visual aids. All right, so here's the thing about a visual aid. It, 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 again, useful input towards, but you can walk into a place and see lots of visual aids, but are they really, in, can you tell within the two, three, four, five minutes that they are a guarantee of high performance? Communication. Of what form? Huddles. All right, why, why are we huddling? Well, we'll get back to the huddling in a moment, the huddling. But, it, but again, it, just because you see a huddle, does that guarantee? How about this? Gracefulness. You walk into an organization and all the pieces seem to be coming together with great fluidity. You know, I, I go to do something, the things I need are in my hand. I go to do something, the information is in my head. I go to do something, the teamwork, when I make, you know, when I pass the ball as it were, exchange the baton, the hand is waiting to just pick it up and start running that race or continuing the play. If you, and, and it simply doesn't matter where you go. It, it could be in high-volume, repetitive work. It could be people just trying to work together on an initial design. You, you get a set of drawings for something, and you look down and say, ah, these are exactly the thing I need. Now, what's the flip side in an organization, group of people trying to do work together? What's the flip side of gracefulness? Chaos, awkwardness, that's right. And we can see, and this is why I put the two, three, four minute time frame on this, is that you can see awkwardness. So back in the day, I did some work inside a, a factory that made uh, jet fighters. I thought this would be the coolest factory ever to visit because it's jet fighters. Well, here's what jet fighter work looks like. It's a bunch of middle-aged guys walking around looking for stuff. I mean, I mean it's worse than a plumber's convention. <laughs> are, the, are the drawings here? No, no, I think Freddie has the drawings. Oh, does Freddie have? I mean, it, it was horrible. Um, awkwardness, because nothing was in the right place at the right time. Now, let's start thinking now. What's the consequence of an organization where the execution of work is graceful? Well, it's pr again, you know, that's true. The thing I'll offer is you can't see productivity in two, three minutes. Happy customers. That's right. And, and, and again, stepping out of healthcare for a moment, Derek introduced me that way, so I'll step outside of healthcare for a moment. Think for a moment when Apple comes out with a new phone, the 7, the 8, the X, the people who queue up to buy that phone, 
so appreciative of the opportunity to give $1,000 to get that phone back. It's like, can, can, can I give you more? And, and, I mean, there was some dude in Beijing, I guess it was the first major market to open up because of Dateline and whatnot. That guy's picture was on the front of the New York Times, right? It, 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 there's an, a graceful organization generates gratitude on the part of the people who depend on it. And that, that could be external. That could be Apple facing all of us. That could be labs facing clinicians who need to make a decision. Gratitude. So what, what's the flip side of gratitude then? Anger and disappointment. All right, so the reason I bring this up is because all the things you all said about measuring organizations is true. Absolutely. Quality, productivity, on and on and on. But those measures take a long time to accumulate. And it, it almost be like measuring blood sugar once an hour and deciding whether or not you needed another shot of insulin or to drink orange juice. But awkwardness and gracefulness you can see in the moment. And if you see awkwardness, you know there's an opportunity to make things better. And you also know if you don't make things better in the moment, there's someone else going to be disappointed. So anyway, let, let me give you a, case, a little case study on looking for awkwardness. So in Boston, we had uh, two major academic medical centers petitioning to expand. And they wanted a lot to expand. In the case of uh, one hospital, they wanted to take this beautiful park, plow it over, and put up a, a tower. And, and the argument was, well, we're at capacity. You know, it's a beautiful park, and yes, parents have spent a lot of time with their children there, but we, we have to extend capacity. And another hospital across town also needed to spend half a billion dollars to expand the capacity of one of their departments. Now, here's the thing. When those hospitals petition for the license, for the permit, to expand, you can't imagine just how altruistic and socially minded they sound. It's like, well, you know, there's uh, all these issues we got to deal with here. I, they don't actually say it with that New York accent, but it's all I got, right? Um, you know, we, we got all these issues we got to deal with, and the, the community is underserved, and uh, we need half a billion dollars to serve the, meet the needs of the community better. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's great, you know, you know, saluting pity patty of the heart. What they, what they don't say is that to put up a new building is going to be wickedly disruptive for the surrounding community, because it's tightly packed already. What they don't say is putting up a building is going to be wildly disruptive for patients and staff during the construction, and what they don't say is if you sink a half a billion dollars here into one hospital and half a billion dollars into this other hospital, you got a billion dollars you're not spending on hungry coal people in the winter. I mean, yes, they're homeless. You can give them navel oranges, but they're still homeless. All right, so I went with one of my doctor friends to the emergency department of one of these hospitals and, uh, you know, looked kind of like this. And I said to him, I said, Ben, you know, this place is kind of a disappointing place to come. And you start thinking about why people show up in an emergency department in the first place. I mean, why do people go to emergency departments? Louder. They're sick. Yeah, they're having a bad day. That's why they're showing up. And they're showing up because someone promised that if you go to the emergency department, your day will be less bad. But then you get there and what happens? Your day gets worse. Because you have to sit around waiting to get any attention with all these other people having a bad day. They're really awful company. So I, I said to my friend Ben, Ben, why are these people not having the badness removed from their day? And I'm putting words in his mouth. He's more a true believer like us, but I need a straw man here. So Ben says, well, you have to understand with all due respect, <laughs> we had a report. Now, once you know, once you got a report, you know it's sacrosanct. I mean, that's like another you know, chat for the Bible. We had a report, and the report said we're at capacity. And I'm like, all right, all right, yeah, but you sure about this? And he says, oh, yeah, it came down from on high. That's the president's office, right? You know, Moses in the president's office, you know, sacrosanct word. And I said, all right, yeah, you have a report that says you're at capacity, but let's see if you really are. So uh, anyway, we're standing on one side of the partition doors, and we walk up, the doors automatically open, we walk in, and, and, and not more the distance from me, the, the fellow wearing the tie right here, what's your name? Monty? Not further from me to Monty, there's a young woman who's just sort of sashaying through the emergency department. I have never seen anyone having a better day. But when you consider you go to an emergency department because you're having a bad day, I was shocked. So I said to Ben, I said, Ben, what does she do here? 
I said, I've seen purple scrubs and green scrubs and blue scrubs and pink scrubs and cartoon scrubs, but what does someone brown, in brown scrubs do? What job do they have? And he mumbles a little bit and he says, well, you know, it doesn't really work here. I said, what? She doesn't work here. Why is she wearing scrubs? He says, oh, we put brown scrubs on our psych patients. <laughs> so we can tell who they are. Now, now, now here, here's the thing. It's like she looked great in the moment, but you know an hour or two or three before, she was having a very bad day, which is why she or her parents decided to bring her there. But now she's sashaying through the department, unmonitored, unconfined, unprotected from doing harm to herself or someone else, should that wonderful medication wear off. All right, so anyway, then th th that was Monty from the distance from Monty. And let's see, two rows behind Monty, there's a lady with shoulder-lined hair. What's your name? Sherry? All right, so not much further from Monty to Sherry, there's another young lady sitting in a, a, an adult-sized jogger stroller. So I'm thinking to myself, adult-sized jogger stroller, um, she's got to have some issue that her parents have to push her around all the time. So that's bad enough. But things have gotten even more bad that they decided to bring her to the emergency department. And uh, the thing is, it wasn't like she was in a designated location. Imagine she was like right here with people walking around her and coming and going and she slumped over. And you could see her parents in terms of gratitude and disappointment. If you could uh, calibrate the whiteness of someone's knuckles as they grab the handlebar of that stroller to disappointment, it'd be off the Richter scale. Because they showed up on a bad day, and there was their daughter, and the badness was still there. All right, so I turned to my friend Ben, and I said, hey, Ben, you know, a lot of latent disappointment here. He said, well, Steve, you got to understand, with all due respect, we have a report. <laughs> I said, all right, well, let's investigate that. So then we started not looking at patients, but looking at Ben's colleagues. And this is all true. So uh, we started looking at nurses. And you all know what nurses were trained to do. I mean, I don't, I'm not, but you all know. Nurses are trained to do stuff that someone else would appreciate as being done. So what are the nurses actually doing? Um, uh, Joe, um, the med cart. Where's the med cart? Uh, Florence, uh, the imaging equipment. Has anyone seen it? Um, the medications I need, where did those go? Hey, where did my patient go? All right. And, and, and then we started looking at doctors. What were doctors doing? It, it turns out doctors must have Hemingway or Jack Kerouac aspiration because they were all in a windowed room typing. New electronic health record to make everything more efficient. They're typing. And, and, it, and it was so bad, I swear, I'm not making this up. One doctor stands up, lifts up the keyboard, slams it down on the table, and says, screw it, I quit. And, and, and as he's going out through the partition doors, he's wearing a smock, he's got the stethoscope, he's muttering to himself, but out loud we can hear, he says, I was going to retire anyway, it's not worth it. I'm, I'm out of here now rather than waiting six months. And, and the younger doctors, of course, they can't do that because they have um, debt. <laughs> I mean, like, like, country-level debt. So they can't quit. But they can curse? I mean, Ron, it was like, it was like unbelievable. I mean, I, you know, being from New York, I wasn't offended. I was actually in awe. I was like, wow, you know. It'd be like if you never read Shakespeare before and then realize, well, what eloquence. So um, when we did a head count, when we did a head count of um, who was actually doing something that looked graceful and might actually contribute to gratitude, it was one out of 10. 90% of the people, when we did our three and four and five minute snapshot, 90% of the people were doing something to serve the system rather than having the system serve and support them. And all that awkwardness manifests itself as tremendous overburden on the staff and tremendous disappointment on part of the patients. Iron Triangle. Anyway, what I want to do is, uh, just in the next few minutes, share with you the behaviors necessary to discover your way to a much better place. And it starts off with recognizing awkwardness. So before I get on to the next slide, I just want to ask people, and I'm going to use a phrase, and then you first image that comes to mind. So like if I say yellow fruit, 
You might think apple or lemon, or if I say red fruit, you might think strawberry, cherry, or apple, or watermelon for that matter. So I'm going to say a phrase, the first phrase that, you know, I'm going to say a phrase, you capture the image that comes to mind. So anyway, here's the phrase, ready? Knowledge worker. All right, boom. What image comes to mind? Physician, that's good. Teacher, good. What else? Software guy, good. What's the last one? Writer, good. All right, so I'm sure, you know, a lot of other ones, but here's the commonality I'm sensing, is that knowledge workers do stuff where they have screens in front of them. Knowledge workers have clean clothes. Knowledge workers likely have initials after their name that are not J.R. and the Roman numerals 3, 4, and 5. All right? Now, 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 when I said knowledge worker, did anyone imagine someone who looks like this? Anybody? Not too many. Now, let me put this in, in terms. The knowledge workers you thought of wake up in the morning and take a shower to get ready for work. This guy or gal, I can't tell, but this guy or gal takes a shower at the end of the day to wash work off. I mean, let me talk about this person as a knowledge worker. So he, he, here's the story. So in... Um, this person is doing work at Alcoa, and, you know, I've heard it plenty of times, with all due respect, you have to understand, our job is life and death. Well, it, it turns out if you work with molten metal, which is melt point 1400 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, and uh, everything else around you is fast moving, heavy, and sharp, uh, that's life and death, all right? So uh, the job of this person is to go up to a giant vat of molten aluminum, and uh, you can imagine on top of molten aluminum, you have this risk of a crust forming because of impurities and coolant temperatures and that kind of thing and temperature gradients. And his job is to break the crust so you don't get pressure underneath to cause an explosion. That's his job, walking up and cracking the, cracking the crust on this thing. Now you can imagine if your job is to walk up to a vast pool of things which is 1400 degrees and it occasionally spatters because of impurities and other things. Um, that's not exactly the safest place to work. And when Alcoa started this uh, journey, um, the chance of getting hurt on the job was about 2%. So to put that in some quantification, if we have, I don't know, what, about 1,000 people in this room? We need 20 volunteers to get hurt in the next year before the next conference. Anybody? Volunteer? We only need 20. I right, pick the person next to you, and then we'll move on. But, but let me just offer this, is that if you manage people, let's say you manage 1,000 people, that means 20 times a year, once every three weeks, once every couple of weeks, you have to make the call. And the call goes something like this. Uh, yeah, Ms. Wyatt, yeah, I got to, hey, I'm really sorry to call and bother you. We're going to do everything we can for Ron. Everything we can, and, and the family and the kids too. All right, when, when you're hurting two out of 100 people every year, the call is part of your managerial responsibility. Now, now here, here's where Alcoa ended up, is they got the chance of uh, getting hurt on the job from 2% a year to 0.07%. To sort of scale that for here, it means none of you have to get hurt this year. So when you sign up, there's early registration. It doesn't involve getting hurt for next year. I made that plug. All right. All right. And, and it means you're not going to know anyone in this room who gets hurt between now and next year. That's what that risk looks like. This risk is lower than just going for a walk every day. All right. Now, the thing I want to point out is uh, iron triangle, aluminum triangle. While Alcoa was moving towards this incredible level of workplace safety, productivity went up, quality went up, everything got better. So it begs the question, how did it get much better? So we'll work you through a case. So let's say, it's Monty. All right, so let's say Monty is garbed in the leather apron, the, the um, Kevlar gloves, the helmet, the face shield, the toe-steeled, uh, the, the steel-toed boots. And Monty is standing, let's see, it's right now um, 10 after 5. 10 after 5, he's in, one of these, in front of one of these pots, and it starts to spatter. And Monty has to jump out of the way. Now, wh why was it he had to jump? Why did he jump? Call it out, remember New York etiquette here? Interrupt. Wh wh why did he jump? Avoid getting burnt, yes, very wise. Just get avoid, but all right, so, but why was he there to get burnt? 
Someone in the back yell it out. I can't tell if you all are awake or just playing Tetris. In the back, come on. Why was he there at 5 after 10 to get burnt that he had to jump? Part of his job. Wait, let me understand this. I'm just trying to understand. Job description when you're recruiting into a unionized environment. One, high school grad, you know, college credits are preferred. Uh, Your job is this, your job is that. Your job is to stand in front of molten metal and jump out of the way so as not to get... That wasn't a job description? Why did he jump? Yeah, but why was he standing there in front of the explosion, the, the spattering? Well, it, but why was that? Well, if the thing was going to spatter out to six feet, why didn't he show up with a seven-foot prod to break the crust on that thing? Or He didn't know any better. He didn't know any better. Because if you told Monty, hey, Monty, here's the thing. At 5'10", I guarantee promise that this will spatter out to six feet. You know what he would have done? He said, hey, can I come either at five, 7 after 5 instead of 10 after, or a quarter after 5 rather than 10 after, or can I at least show up with a 10-foot prod rather than a 5-foot prod? Because I don't want to get burnt or have to jump out of the way not to get burnt. Ignorance was the root cause. Now, let, let, let's keep playing this forward. Is, is someone unusually tall in the room? All right, if not, let's say the unusually tall person in the room is working and has to Let's call that person Carl. This is a Carl in the room is unusually tall. Let's say Carl is standing there doing his work, and a boom comes swinging on by, and Carl has to duck at 514. Why did Carl duck at 514? I mean, we know not to get hit in the head. But why was it necessary? Why was he there at 514? What's that? It's in his job to stand there and duck? He's not a goalie. Because he didn't know any better. Because if you told John, you know, start of the day, hey, John, you know, we have a scheduled boom swing at 514, um, uh, would you stand there? You'd say, no, I think I'm going to talk to my union and have a grievance. Now, let, let's think through. Why did the person who's moving that boom swing it at 514 when John was standing there? They didn't know any better. All right, so here, here's the thing. Whether you come out of a community that has embraced lean and, uh, or Six Sigma or total quality or whatever else, and you do Ishikawa diagrams, fishbone diagrams, whatever else, and you go through your 5Ys, 10Ys, 15Ys to find a root cause for a problem, we normally stop at either the person, like Monty's a moron for standing in front of that pot. I mean, that's how it plays, Monty. I'm not really saying you're a moron, but that's how it plays out. Or Call was a moron, or the, the boom operator was a moron. Or we blame it on the technology, which is, well, you know, if we had it. But the root cause of all problems is ignorance. Because we never would have designed a system to put Monty and Carl at risk. The only reason the system puts them at risk is we don't know any better. So this becomes the profound change at Alcoa. Because you start thinking about Alcoa, their history is as long as as any of the oldest institutions in this room. 100 years plus of manufacturing aluminum. People showing up every day with the thought that their job is to convert raw materials into refined materials, accepting the risk of bodily harm. What the folks at Alcoa started thinking through, is that really true? So they started thinking through, let's say, on safety. So they started asking some questions. First question is, where are we today? The answer was 20 people in this room have to get hurt in the next 12 months. Where do we want to be? Start thinking through, and just like here, no volunteers to get hurt. Said, oh, well, where we need to be is perfect. Because if we're not perfect, we're going to disappoint somebody. And they started thinking iron triangle. Well, if we're going to pursue perfect safety, what are we going to give up? Someone said, well, how about product quality? We'll, We'll ship product with bad chemistry. So they went through the thought experiment. And again, I'm saying this a little more dramatically than it actually happened. But the thought experiment, well, let's call up Coke and Pepsi and see if either of them will take metal for their cans that will allow their product to spoil quicker. Well, no one wants that at the corner of the Iron Triangle. How about we call Boeing or Airbus and say, hey, the spars we're selling you will take less flexation than we promised. No one wants that corner of the Iron Triangle. So the folks at Alcoa realize, you know, if we're going to really pursue, we've got to pursue perfect on everything, because no one wants to be the volunteer to get imperfect. So they go on another thing here, which is, um, 
if the root cause of all our problems is ignorance, then what we need to do is learn our way from ignorance to knowledge. And you start thinking about what's the first step in all learning? It's seeing a problem. Because if you don't have a problem, then there's really no reason to learn. You know, if you hop on your bicycle and you ride and you, know, you don't get windy, you don't fall down, you handle the terrain, you don't have to improve. If you put on ice skates and you don't fall down, you can play the hockey or whatever else you want to do and you don't fall down, no need to get better. The only real consistent motivation to get better is to, if you have a problem. So the folks at Alcoa say, wait a second, we have to redefine the job of Monty from being the guy who walks up with the 10-foot prod covered in this garb to break the crust. Monty's job is to tell us when we don't understand what's happening, when the, the mix spatters. Carl's job has to be to call out when he's having difficulty. Luann, when she's working on an extrusion press, she has to call out when the metal jams up and the press doesn't run. When someone is over here and they have instructions to run a job, and they don't know how many parts to make, part of their job is to say they have a problem. Now, now next thing that they start building into Alcoa work is um, if you see a problem, someone's got to come over and help you solve that problem. And, and it gets like this. Let, let's just play this routine. What if Monty has this jumping problem at 5.12, and we say, Monty, we'll get back to you. We'll show up in an hour. How useful is that? Anybody in the back? The Tetris people. Is that useful? No, it's not useful. Why is it not useful? Show up an hour later. Monty, yeah, I'm glad you jumped. We'll show up in an hour to figure out why. Is that useful? Why not? Louder. You're not solving it? Why not? Why can't I show up an hour later and, and I can't solve the problem? Time sensitive. How so? Conditions change. Exactly right. If I show up an hour later and I say, hey, Monty, show me what caused you to jump. He can't. He can show me the mix an hour later. And it may be perfectly fine. And he may be showing me the thing that causes him to be calm, not jumping. If I show up with Carl and I say, hey, Carl, it's an hour later, a day later, a week later. I read the safety report. Can you show me why you had a duck? He can't. He can't. He can show me what things are happening an hour later. Now, here, here's the thing. I want to connect this back to what you all were trained to do. You have a patient. They show up. They're clearly not doing well. What's the first thing you do? I mean, after you register them and take their insurance payment information. <laughs> but after that, what's that? Assessment, right? You start examining them. You don't say deliberately, well, you look terrible. We'll come back to you in an hour to find out in an hour why you look terrible an hour before. Right? You start assessing them. You examine them. You take a history. Maybe you take um, specimens for lab. You do some imaging. In the moment, you realize there's a problem. I need to understand why. So it's this very quick recognition. I have a problem. I have to start understanding the source of the problem. So when you start thinking about what the Alcoa people were doing, they weren't doing anything different from what you all do. They were just doing it removed from the bedside. They're saying, we have a system. It's inherently unstable. It's complex. It's dynamic. It's always changing, like human biology. Sometimes it goes out of whack, like human biology. When it goes out of whack, we want to find out in the moment exactly what's happening, like human biology, so we can come to a meaningful understanding and assessment and diagnosis as to why it's going out of whack. So there's something else going on with the Alcoa people. See, they've gone, um, let's take Monty's example again of, of jumping out of the way of the spatter. At 5.10, no one knew that that melt would spatter at 5.12. At 5.10, no one knew the conditions that would occur at 5.12. But holding to this discipline of if Monty has a problem, he calls it out. And when he calls it out, other people come to help figure it out. They're calling a code. 
at 5.13, 5.14, something's happened profound. At 5.10, Monty and the other people were just ordinary people working at Alcoa. At 5.13, they were now world experts. What I mean by that is at 5.10, no one knew about the spattering problem. No one predicted it. No one anticipated it. No one understood it. But at 5.13, 5.14, 5.15, Monty and those people who came to help investigate the problem, they now knew something no one else in the world knew. Now, let me ask you this. In those knowledge workers where people have clean clothes and they shower in the morning, not at night, when someone becomes a world expert, what does that person do? What's that? Yeah, like this. <laughs> they stand up in front of their friends and brag about what they've learned. Right? They, they brag about it and they tell other people. And, yet, and I have to be perfectly honest, it's very ego gratifying. But also it's socially useful. Right? Because in bragging, the thing that that hard-earned hard wisdom is now useful not by the person who just earned the wisdom through that hard work, but useful for everybody. And the folks at Alcoa said, this is crazy. We have all these people moment here and there becoming world experts at stuff. We have to make sure part of their job description is sharing what they've learned. Now there's one last piece to this. Now the folks at Alcoa have profoundly rewritten both literally and figuratively what it means to be an Alcoa worker. It means showing up at work. All right, think about what it used to mean. Showing up at work and using some very, very complex, high-hazard, high-risk technology. Showing up at work to turn raw materials into finished material. What they're now saying is your job is to show up at work and using those raw materials and using that dangerous technology. Your job is to use that stuff to learn something useful for yourself and others. Now, there's a, a last very important change here, is that this notion that you show up and relentlessly raise your hand and say, um, hey, uh, boss, the system you've created to support me in doing my work is not working. I need help. That's countercultural. And for your boss to come over, or if you're the boss, to come over and say, oh, you're having trouble. What's the problem? How can I be helpful? That part is countercultural. And so what the folks at Alcoa discovered very quickly is that if you want a system in which people are relentlessly seeing problems, solving problems, teaching other people what they've learned, then a paramount important job of senior leaders is to maintain that dynamic all the time. That dynamic does not have its own, in, own inherent momentum. You constantly have to give it impulse to keep going. So with uh, just a few minutes left on, before I get to the conclusion, there's been very few interruptions. Someone yell out an objection, a question, something. For sure. Pretend you're my grandmother and just say, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. All together, all together, right? One, two, three. Stupidest thing I ever heard. One, two, three. You're warming my heart. I feel like I'm at home. All right, but so, someone, you got to have a question here. Let the robot do it. Let the robot do it. All right, that's all well and good. So anyway, let the robot do it. So here's the data and then the logic on the robot. Ford actually tried that. They said, you know, we can't trust the people. We'll have the robots do it. Now, here's the thing. Why don't the robots do it right now? Because you don't know how to build a robot which can do it, right? So you have to learn. So if you've already shut your brain off to the basic problem of all human enterprise being ignorance, and if you shut your brain off to the antidote for that, or the corrective measure in all human enterprise being learning, if you've shut your brain off to ignorance and learning as the, you know, the offsets, then you think, oh, well, robots, you know, that's easy. But you forget the fact that someone actually has to design and program the robot. Right? Because when you start, you're ignorant about what the robot should look like, what it should do, and how it should do it. So back in the day, Ford, forgetting that the root cause of all problem is ignorance, 
the solution for all problem is knowledge, um, and the gap closer is learning, they said, let's get rid of people and put in robots. So they built a factory with robots to make cars. It's supposed to be a turnkey, assuming that you can buy it off the shelf, turnkey lights off solution. So they uh, build the factory, turn off the lights, turn the key, and the robots start trying to make cars. And within a few hours, the robots had actually welded each other into like a very large installation piece of art. And, and, and again, why was that? Because the folks at Ford had forgotten, oh, wait a second, whether we use people or robots, we still have to close the gap with learning. All right, so the, the robots, yeah, they may be helpful, and there's certain things where you want a robot rather than a person for precision and repetition and that kind of thing, but there's still some person who's got to program the robot. And that means that you have to give that person the space and the license to call out the problems with the robot and solve those problems and tell somebody else what they've learned. All right, some other people, you know, again, this, you know, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. So, I mean, not about the robots. You were saying that to me. Another question. Louder. Someone yell at, she yelled at halfway, someone else yell at the rest of the way. What's happening with you? Well, again, that one out of ten. Why is it nine out of ten are not doing something a patient appreciates? Because they don't know how to do it better. All that awkwardness you see in your institutions day in, day out. Why are people awkward? They don't show up, they get off the subway, they get off the T, they get out of their car and say, hey, you know, I really know how to do this well. I know how to make sure that I do great nursing, clinical, doctor work bedside. I know how to make sure that the right medication gets in the right vein, the right mouth, the right time, the right way. But what the hell, let's keep things interesting. How much fun would it be if things actually worked the way they're supposed to? So the, re the reason in these emergency departments, when we went in and we found one out of 10 doing something useful for patients, nine out of 10 serving the system rather than having the system serve them, is that, that place was just littered, littered and polluted with ignorance about how to do things gracefully. But no one was doing knowledge work. Like at Alcoa, no one was saying, oh, hold on, we've got a problem, let's find out. I mean, yes, they were doing at bedside with a patient. Mrs. Morris is having some difficulty with blood sugar control. Let's figure out why. But take one step back from the bedside. Where's the thing I'm going to use to measure the blood sugar? I don't know. Where's the thing I'm going to do the assessment? I don't know. How do I get this sample to labs? I don't know. I mean, all those are signs of ignorance. But bedside, yes, knowledge work. Two steps back, none. Two steps back, none. So anyway... Let me leave you with some homework and how, how, this, how this actually works. So everyone in this room either works or supports others doing work. So here's your job. Here's your homework when you know, you're here till Wednesday when you get back Thursday. When you get back to work, go up to someone and say, hey, what are you doing? And not like that. That's in New York. Like, hey, what are you doing? Right? No, but say it like they say in the Midwest. Hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? I can fake nice for like 15 seconds. I'm done, all right? What are you doing? Why are you doing it? What's the purpose? And how are you doing it? And then the next question, what problem are you having doing that? Ask that question. And then the next part of your homework is uh, what's not working? Why is it difficult? What's the cause of it? And again, we know the cause is ignorance, but something not quite that root as root cause. And uh, what do you want to change in the next hour by tomorrow that you think might make things easier? And the last question, the changes we made an hour ago, a day ago, a week ago, how well did it work? Now again, to the question, how does this apply to you? All I'm saying is what you need to do for your systems is do exactly, exactly, exactly What'd you do with patients? Because think, uh, think about this language. Patient walks in. Mrs. Morrison, how are you doing? A. Mrs. Morrison, why don't you feel well? What doesn't feel well? Where do you have pain? Where do you have suffering? B. Well, let me examine you. Let me get some data. Let me take some samples. Let me take some images to figure out why you might, might not be feeling well. 
see. Hey, Mrs. Morrison, I got some ideas about how to make you feel better. I've got this treatment plan. D. And hey, Mrs. Morrison, I'm going to check up on you tomorrow, follow up to see if your progression is as we've prognosticated. To see if we understood well why you're not feeling well, if we understood well how to treat you. And if not, we'll go through A, B, C, and D again. So that follow-up, that's E. So that has, this is how it applies to you, is do good clinical care. But do good clinical care not only to your patients, not only to your patients, but do good clinical care on the systems through which you're trying to harness all this collective collaborative effort towards common purpose. And if you do that, I guarantee the Iron Triangle does not apply to you. So anyway, that's your homework. And I just want to say thank you to all of you for striving to do better and better and better at meeting critical needs. Thanks.